This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning. Um, on behalf of the Institute of the Americas, it's a pleasure to introduce you to this morning's uh, presentation um, of our paper um, entitled China Takes the Claim in Latin America Energy, What It Means for Our Region, the United States, and Beijing. Uh, this study um, that was undertaken by the Institute um, was made possible um, by um, support from um, Alumbra Innovations Foundation and the generous um, backing of the Institute's Energy Steering Committee member companies. Um, this morning, um, you're going to hear from two of the principal co-authors of the report, um, Cecilia Gallon, who's our um, director of our Energy Transitions Program, and Jeremy Martin, who's the vice president of our Energy and Sustainability Program. We also have a um, discussion uh, panel that will follow their initial presentation um, with Matt uh, uh, Furgin, um, who is the head of global uh, China research at the Mercator Institute uh, for China Studies. Also, we have Michael um, Davidson, a professor at uh, the University of California, San Diego's um, uh, School of, of Global Studies, Global Policy and Strategy, I'm sorry. Um, finally, I want to um, thank um, UCTV, the University of California Television, for co-sponsoring this program with us. And at this time, um, it gives me great pleasure to um, uh, present our paper and um, and share some of our key findings. Jeremy? Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, definitely look forward to sharing some of the report highlights. Um, but first, let me, let me uh, before we dive into the material, I'd like to also uh, offer my uh, sincere appreciation on part of the Institute's Energy and Sustainability Program to Alumbra Innovations Foundation for their uh, support of our research and, of course, publication of this paper. And let me underscore the, the amazing support and research efforts by a whole host of people. Uh, but bear with me. I want to uh, indicate by name some of these folks. Richards highlighted the incredible role that Cecilia Aguillon, the Energy Transition Initiative Director at the Institute of the Americas, played in uh, managing the overall research project and indeed writing a, a, a lion's share of the report. Uh, my colleagues, Jacqueline Sanchez, who did a, a, a amount of research, Carlos Fernandez, Rita Oliveira, Diana Rodriguez, they're all working on the Spanish and Portuguese versions, and we'll have those out probably next week. Uh, we have the English version that's come out yesterday, and we'll share that link again later. And also, I uh, want to make sure we underscore the support of our research interns from UCSD and University of San Diego, Rolando Almada, Zoe Shu, and Tegan McGinnis. And last but certainly not least, uh, Joseph Mann, Matt Furchin, and Michael Herberg were three instrumental voices in, in wise counsel as we worked through uh, various versions of this report and indeed brought it uh, to publication yesterday. And we'll, we'll hear more from Matt here in a little bit. Um, so for those of you who've been able to already look at the report and hopefully read it, it's, uh, it's 40 pages and we're not going to go through all 40 pages this morning. Don't worry, everyone. We don't, we don't have that much bandwidth or time. But, um, you know, we want you to read the entire report, obviously. So, indeed, what we'll do this morning is a few highlights that we'll tease out and we'll, uh, we'll share with you what we think are some of the, the messages that um, are consistent through the 40 pages of the paper that we'll have you read. So, four or five key messages and, and takeaways that we want to share and, and foster in our discussion this morning. 
Um, traditional investment strategies, uh, I think what we would call the China's designs on Latin America and the Caribbean's oil patch and oil sector. Then we'll turn to uh, new investment strategies and spend a little bit more time on mergers and acquisitions and, and share some important developments in that sphere. China dominates energy transition. Um, and within that, and this is where Cecilia will, will share a lot of her research and writing, renewable energy, but also critical minerals. And that's going to be something we'll talk a lot about this morning. And then the, the most recent development, which, of course, in the process of finalizing this paper, we had an election and we had a, uh, um, a new president sworn in on January 20th in the United States. And we'll talk about the Biden administration, Latin America and China, but particularly the, the climate change angle. So traditional investment in Latin America's oil patch. Uh, I think that this element of China's reach into Latin America is is pretty well known. I think for most folks joining us today, a lot of the the story over the last couple of decades, the the element of China's going out strategy, the incredible amount of loans to Venezuela, sixty two point two billion dollars, according to one estimate, um, that were secured by oil. Um, it, it's been clear for at least a decade, if not more that China uh, and Beijing's designs on Latin America's oil patch were aimed at energy security, energy supply security, and diversification of supplies to meet its surging domestic demand for energy. And of course, around 2010, uh, China became one of the world's, if not the most uh, important energy consumer in the world. And so in the going out strategy, being able to secure access to important upstream supplies and, and really lock in uh, air energy security guarantor through through geographic focal points such as Latin America. Um, but what I really want to talk a, a little bit about is moving beyond sort of that traditional um, designs on Latin America's oil patch and that loans for oil, which we've, we've definitely talked a lot about in the last, like I said, couple of, uh, of decades, if not um, around that amount of time, is this this sort of evolving strategy to... to um, channel more investment or to channel their activity to to continue to move into the energy space in Latin America through mergers and acquisitions. And so here's where I, I really sort of want to emphasize what I think is, is unique in our report and where we've really tried to focus some of our efforts in terms of China in this staking its claim in Latin American energy. In, in the last couple of years, I think you really see an effort on the Chinese to uh, to generate profits and, and keen interest on, on developing new markets for products, uh, particularly in terms of transmission and distribution of electricity, uh, solar power, wind, and of course, electric vehicles. There was a, a number that came out just recently. We were able to, to include that in our report that said in 2020, Chinese mergers and acquisitions in Latin America reached just under $8 billion dollars. Uh, and that was about 25% of China's acquisitions worldwide. So Latin America f- figured in 2020 for about a quarter of the mergers and acquisitions that Chinese really state-owned enterprises uh, uh, transacted. In those, those transactions we've seen in Brazil, Chile, and Mexico, and I'll, and I'll talk in a minute about some of those. Indeed, we, we have an image on the, the screen here of State Grid, and again, uh, just as much as sort of China's designs on Latin America's oil patch is is a bit of well-worn territory and folks know, I think people have probably now at least heard of State Grid and where State Grid is figured in this, what I'm calling uh, new investment strategy uh, of acquisitions in um, gobbling up assets, particularly in the electric sector. In Brazil, State Grid's investments total $12.4 billion dollars. And for the company, that represents 60% of State Grid's investments outside of China. 
again, these, these are important numbers when we look at sort of this new strategy uh, moving beyond just the development bank and, and the BRI kinds of loans and loans for oil. One of those acquisitions to, to reach that total was CPFL Energia in 2017. That was Brazil's largest private energy company. It's now in the hands of State Grid. 2019, China's Southern Power purchased 27.7% of Transelec, uh, an important transmission company in Chile. Um, State Grid, for those of us here in San Diego, remember State Grid purchased Sempra Energy's Chilquinta Energy, uh, 100% of that asset, uh, which is the third largest distributor in Chile. And another deal uh, that was one uh, occurring last year that received a lot of attention and continues to receive a lot of attention is a roughly $3 billion effort to acquire by State Grid Compañía General de Electricidad from Natergy in Chile. And again, this has triggered uh, something we talk a little bit about in the report, and that is how countries are going to manage these investments and these acquisitions of, of critical infrastructure in the power, transmission, and distribution markets of, of countries like Chile and Brazil. And also, it bears mentioning what happened in Mexico, which is, uh, um, and this is a, a deal that we don't have the numbers for, but uh, China State Power Investment Corporation acquired Zuma Energia late last year. And for those of you who follow Mexico, you know that Zuma has been one of the first movers uh, in terms of private participation in the Mexican renewable energy space and owns uh, important wind and solar assets and indeed is one of Mexico's largest renewable energy firms. The same firm has other operations and renewables in Brazil and Chile. Um, and I think all of this is also the perfect way to seg segue to what I talked about is one of our key issues in the report, and that is China dominating energy transition. And with that, I would uh, like to turn it over to my colleague, Cecilia Aguillon, who, like I said, is uh, I want to, again, commend for an amazing job uh, leading this research effort, leading this report writing, and, uh, and is a great colleague who manages our Energy Transition Initiative. Cecilia. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Good morning, everyone. Yes, uh, I will share with you some of our thoughts or, or research on this subject. Um, as you know, uh, not, no one is surprised to know that or, or to hear that China is the dominant power in, in renewable energy. And uh, they are uh, pretty much anywhere in the world today, especially Latin America, you see at least 90% or more of the products of the technologies in wind and solar are made in China. And um, the China's Global Energy Finance Database at Boston University um, shows some uh, figures that were kind of interesting. Out of the $58.4 billion invested in energy in Latin America, this is during the period 2000 and 2019, only 15% was spent on renewables. But keep in mind that renewable energy markets in, in the LAC region, it's, it's, they're still emerging. So there's a lot of room to grow. Um, China has been able to almost overnight create a robust manufacturing base. And I remember this because I used to be in the solar energy industry for many years. And it used to be a handful of Japanese and, and uh, European companies doing business in China, selling modules. And all of a sudden, from like 2005 to 2010, we saw all these companies coming in um, with prices 30%, 40% below the, the current market price. And every six months, you saw prices going down all the time. 
so much so that um, Europe and the United States imposed import duties on China because they were people, the, the uh, factories accused them of um, dumping. So what happened, though, that in that time, right, from 2010, 2014, the, the, the equipment, solar wind equipment became so affordable that markets like Mexico was able to create a robust um, uh, industry or, or market for uh, wind and also even rooftop solar. So it was kind of a benefit for Latin America to have this uh, price war uh, waging internationally. And uh, after that, the auctions became you know, very in, in vogue in Latin America, starting with Mexico in 2015, where prices of uh, energy that came from the auctions, prices of the PPAs or uh, power purchase agreements were so low that it blew the expectations and, and everybody thought it was not possible. But the next auction that happened the year after, the price was still coming down. It just feels that there is no bottom, really, that prices continue to decline. And that has benefited also Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and most recently, Colombia. So all this equipment is going in from coming in from China. But now the Chinese banks are getting involved because when any normal investor sees the prices, the contract prices and the conditions, and they think, oh, this is not possible, it's not financeable. So now we need financing. So now here comes uh, China banks financing projects um, in in the region. And uh, something very interesting happened in Colombia, where Colombia had their first auction in 2019. And the prices of that auction came in even lower than the ones in Mexico, below three cents. Those prices were interesting, but what was even more so was that the contracts were in in the currency, in, in the local currency, not in U.S. dollars. Everywhere you see contracts for PPAs in U.S. dollars to give confidence to the investors. In this case, um, it was a kind of a risky proposition, but paid off for one entity. It was the um, manufacturer of solar panels that won pretty much all the solar portion of the auction. And um, of course, th- what they gained in return, maybe the, the, the deal was not as good as a normal investor would, would envision, but they will be shipping panels, they will be shipping equipment. And in some cases, they bring Chinese workers and Chinese engineers and they engineer the project, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there are other benefits that a normal company would not get. Um, and this is, um, it, it's, it's quite interesting that you have the national government, the provincial government and um, the banks loaning you money. So, you, see, you don't see anything like that in the world, and uh, you can see how easily they became like the dominant force um, in this space. And Jeremy talked about the M&A deal uh, in Mexico with Suma Energy. What's interesting, interesting to note is that that deal occurred just when renewable energies are having a hard time to get deployed in Mexico. So why would a company buy a, a, a renewable energy entity in this during this time? It's interesting. Um, but um, we don't stop there, of course, because now the new emerging technologies for decarbonization are in, embedded in the batteries. So electric mobility, station 
um, stationary ba batteries for homes and buildings. And China is already make, paving its way into this market and, and staking a, a, a flag there as, uh, um, to be the leader. We see that because they are shipping buses, electric buses to um, cities like Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and most recently in Colombia. And this is happening when the EV charging infrastructure in, develop, in developing countries is, is not really there. And the EV cost is not really co uh, competitive with uh, traditional vehicles. So it's, um, it, it's good for the countries, um, non, of course, because they, they will be able to get new technologies, but uh, we just have to scratch our heads as to who's, how is this happening. Well, so the dominance is also felt in the batteries I mentioned. There is a, uh, a report by the Benchmark Minerals uh, Reporting Agency uh, in Market Intelligence for Lithium-Ion Batteries. They show that the largest producer of lithium-ion batteries that go into the cars and into uh, the buildings, in the batteries for buildings, the China has 63% share of the world production. The United States is a, a close, well, not, not even a close second, it's a distant second at 14%. And um, Chinese companies are pretty much active throughout the entire value chain um, with their battery production. So, so this is a chart that I took from a report that the Institute of the Americas and the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines published last year about uh, battery production and the role that Latin American countries with lithium deposits play or as aspire to play. I apologize for the quality of this graph. I took it from the paper. Here it shows where this um, production is being done. And then um, the steps. So number one is lithium deposit to concentrate. The number two column is lithium refining to battery chemical. Number three is cathode manufacturing. Number four is battery cell manufacturing. Number five is battery pack and EV manufacturing. Number six is EV market. So you can see the United States well, has uh, California, Nevada, and North Carolina. Three uh, states pretty much play in all of the value chain except for, for the number three which is uh, the cathode manufacturing. So, but Latin America, you see the, where the oil deposits are mostly Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. Um, Chile and Argentina um, are pretty well positioned in the value chain, except they don't have a, a market and they don't produce cathode either. But Bolivia, that is one of the largest, believed to have the largest deposits of uh, lithium in the world. It's only has aspirational goals, but we haven't seen them playing in that space. Yet you go to China, and China is actually all over it. They are everywhere in the space. So it's interesting too, because now there are a lot of billions of dollars from Chinese state companies uh, that go to acquire high stakes in the minings, and they get as a result sec to secure production and supplies of the lithium that then go to China. Um, a lot of the countries that have the deposits, they are concerned because they want to play in the space, but they can't. 
So what they do is um, all the, the extractions go back to China to be processed because the processing is intensive, is capital intensive, and, and it's not really cost effective. And, and China's game has been all along to reduce cost and um, you know ship and export. So um, it is not really... We, I don't see a way that we can get man, manufacturing of all of these processes in the, the countries that have the lithium. So something is going to, to happen in, in countries are they're protesting in Chile and Bolivia about the mining and even Mexico they um, they were moving legislation to to nationalize lithium because they were concerned about just being the provider of the raw materials. So at the end of the day, each country must balance its desire or need for for investment against against the impacts of uh, pollution of, in the of the ecosystem and and um, and also like what what is the uh, what do they gain do they gain more than they give and the same for China right they are very keen on a lot of the the countries in Latin America are very keen on continuing to ship to export the products so China offers a great market for for raw materials and, and for even for food products. And um, but their investments and and the trading partnerships come with costs. So as a condition to investments, you have to use Chinese products, and in many times you, instances you have to bring Chinese personnel to do the to develop the projects. And also there is the issue with um, with uh, Taiwan uh, condition to have uh, the countries recognize Taiwan as part of China and, and things like that, that um, we, it's always been weighted. So now we go to the United States that has been the, one of the, the principal trading partners in Latin America and what is going on there. Of course, they have been concerned about um, the, the growing presence of China and particularly the uh, uh, the strong control on minerals. It is believed that China con- uh, controls like 80% of the critical minerals that go into uh, high technology, defense technology, um, electronics, et cetera, et cetera, telecommunications, and of course, batteries. And the U.S. really want to put a stop to that. So in 2017, then President Trump issued an executive order with a plan to reduce the U.S. vulnerability to these disruptions in the supply of critical minerals and included cooperation with uh, allies like the EU, Japan, uh, South Korea, well, to counterbalance um, Chinese dominance. Peru and Brazil participated in the initiative, which also promotes sustainable mining. Another initiative uh, that came out uh, recently is the America, it's called America Crece, which is translated into growth in the Americas. And this is to attract investments in energy and infrastructure in Latin America. And the idea is to encourage cooperation and sustainable practices. Well, these programs obviously are relatively new. And now we have a new president in the White House. So the question now is, what will the United States do? Joe Biden, well, he comes in as the, as the new president with a host of issues, domestic issues that he needs to deal with. So how will he treat the China-US lack relationship? 
And for that question, I will uh, give the mic back to Jeremy Martin, who will take us to the finish line. Jeremy, back to you. Thank you, Cecilia. Well, indeed. <clears throat> so uh, this is obviously uh, what we'll end here with uh, perhaps one of the more critical elements to continue to assess. We're, we're not even a month into the new administration. Um, Cecilia talked about some of the U.S. government efforts uh, leading up to January 20th. Uh, let me just tease out what I think is an important area to keep a focus on. And, and look, we had a call yesterday between Presidents Biden and Xi that it seems like the there's, you know, the readout was was a bit perfunctory, but it indicates some of the typical talking points. And in there, of course, is climate. And that's where I want to focus this last couple of minutes before we have our discussion. Um, and, and I think we all know that the, the Biden administration arrived during the transition and now, of course, in office with uh, rightfully gaining a lot of headlines about its efforts on climate. And, and with that, on day one was the reentry into the Paris Agreement. Um, that was an important shot in the arm, I would suggest, for the international community combating climate change. It also emphasized, as we all had talked so much about, the Biden uh, and his, his foreign policy uh, sort of sphere, the uh, emphasis on multilateralism. But I think also we, we anticipated and have already seen a, a whole slew of executive actions, um, executive orders um, from the president, day one on Paris reentry, uh, but a whole slew, like I said, of executive actions that really did place combating climate change at the center of every, uh, every part of the national security, economic, and, and of course, international affairs and foreign policy of the administration. Um, indeed, I, I want to read one of those, uh, some language from one of the executive orders, because it's particularly important for our conversation about the Biden administration, its efforts in Latin America vis-a-vis -vis China. And in one of the executive orders, it, say, it, it required all agencies to develop strategies for integrating climate considerations into their international work. So we're obviously going to move beyond just the State Department, the Development Finance Corporation, um, the sort of traditional areas where we saw the U.S. government focus. And I think, you know, we sometimes from D.C. hear this whole of government concept. And I think that's indeed what this executive order speaks to with regards to climate and, of course, in terms of how to confront China, in our case, in Latin America. Uh, further, the, the, the Biden administration, some of its preliminary investment strategies has talked about uh, emphasizing clean energy, resilient and sustainable infrastructure. They want to drive innovation. They want to deal with 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 uh, confronting poverty and confronting uh, uh, corruption issues. And of course, deploying uh, the support the deployment of increased renewable uh, domestic sources of energy across the hemisphere. And as they said, to, be, to to begin to construct a secure middle class and democratic uh, forms of government from Canada to Chile. I, I think it's also important when we dial in specifically on on the role of, of Biden's administration and, and how we see his goals and objectives in Latin America play out with regard to China. Um, there, there has been language, and, and it's all within quotes here, and we obviously in the paper get a lot more deep into this uh, conversation, but the attempt to rally a united front to hold Beijing accountable to high environmental standards, and it's in this case Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure projects, but the emphasis and the objective on, you know, trying to make high carbon and, and in carbon intensive kinds of projects, financing and infrastructure, the goal and objective at this point really to, to counter those and make them more expensive and, and diminish their uh, development in the ensuing years in, in Latin America. There's also an interesting, you know, in, in, in part of the readout of the call yesterday, we saw the, the affirmation of a potential U.S.-China bilateral agreement 
on carbon mitigation or, or an effort. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross and then any kind of bilateral agreement in that regard. Um, but I think it's also important, again, to come back to this multilateralism concept and something else that the Biden administration uh, and the transition has talked about any more recently is using fora such as the G20, uh, international fora, not just, you know, the, the, the Paris Agreement construct, but something such as the G20 uh, group of nations to end all export finance subsidies of high carbon projects. Um, and again, trying to not just offer a policy of negation, but to also offer a policy of support in, in terms of alternative uh, development financing that's aimed at low carbon energy investments. That's going to be critical, right? Because as we know, Latin America has been hammered by COVID-19 in economic terms, uh, some of the worst downturns in the, in the region's history. So this element of supporting and financing deployment of clean energy and combatant climate change is just as critical as I would suggest speaking to multilateral approaches at the G20 to reduce uh, carbon intensity subsidization. So um, a final couple of points that I think are, are extremely important, perhaps at this moment more so uh, the first one domestically in the U.S., but I think we'll see expressed and have seen expressed in some of the language of the executive orders that will ripple into the foreign policy sphere, and that is the issue of climate justice and the issue of adaptation. Now, Climate justice, you know, I think is is something that has been at the forefront of, of the Biden uh, team. And if you look uh, not just with the appointment of someone like John Kerry or Gina McCarthy, but if you look at the Council of Economic Advisors, if you look at some of the other folks on his team in foreign policy and economic and national security, this is absolutely going to be something that's going to be emphasized. It's been emphasized in one of the early executive orders that I have some quotes here on the screen. And we'll see that, I again suggest, playing out in the region, um, perhaps not immediately, but I think it's going to continue to be emphasized. And then I think it's important, you know, in Latin America, particularly in the Caribbean and Central America, uh, we saw the horrendous impacts of hurricanes last year. We see increased forced migration because of uh, uh, climatic events and, and incidents. And so how can this administration really, again, in this moment of economic downturn, support resiliency and support a, a more robust uh, infrastructure or resilient infrastructure in the region that adapts to this ever-changing and, 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 you know, increasingly dramatic climatic events that we're seeing in Central America and the Caribbean and Mexico in particular. But, you know, droughts and, and fires and, 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 and hurricanes and tornadoes are not limited to just those areas, um, perhaps more pronounced in those areas, but certainly critical everywhere. So I, I want to be able to have our expert commentators share their thoughts. That is uh, uh, the 20-minute summary of a 40-page report. Uh, and let me throw it back over to the Institute of the Americas, President Richard Kai, who will uh, take it from here. Thanks so much. And thanks to Matt and Michael for joining us. I look forward to their comments. Richard. Uh, Jeremy, Cecilia, thanks so much for your excellent presentation. At this point, I want to uh, reintroduce Matt uh, Furchin who, as I said, is the head of global China research at the Mercator Institute. Uh, Matt is an um, expert on Chinese economic statecraft and that country's brick and road initiative in the developing um, world with emphasis in Latin America. So he comes with a great deal of knowledge and perspective um, that will, I think, enrich this conversation. And then we'll follow up with uh, Michael uh, Davidson, as is indicated, is an assistant professor at UCSD School for Global Policy and Strategy, GPS. So uh, Matt, uh, take it away. Great, well, thank you so much, Richard. Uh, and uh, thank you 
to um, all of the organizers of today's event and, and to Jeremy uh, in particular for asking me to be involved today uh, as someone who was involved in the uh, review and some feedback uh, of the original report. Uh, it is really a great joy to see um, what you've come up with here and been able to incorporate a, a lot uh, of detail uh, and really important insights into this report. So I'm going to uh, focus my comments in three areas. One of them is the sort of distinction between traditional and new areas. Uh, the second one is the the emphasis on the U.S. role and sort of political risk issues that Jeremy was just discussing. And then uh, the third area, um, sustainability issues in global comparison. So let me begin uh, with a, a discussion of this tradition versus traditional versus new sectors. Um, uh, this is something that I think comes up a lot in the broader relationship between China and, and Latin America. And this is uh, in large part because the relationship fundamentally continues to be about uh, the export of raw materials, largely from South America to China, uh, and on the Chinese side, the export of finance um, and more um, uh, finance investment, but also um, higher end manufactured products. Um, and the, the real question here is continues to be, even as we look at sort of the distinction between traditional um, and uh, new sectors and the energy transition that the paper mentions, is to what extent will the region be caught up again in commodity cycles uh, that we've seen in the past? Again, there was a, you know, a really important cycle uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, and the question mark now is on sort of where does that leave the region, both in fossil fuels, but also in this energy transition sector. Uh, so just pointing, pointing out that sort of obvious but continuing important area. The second thing I'd like to mention here in the area of traditional versus new sectors is the, the emphasis that China is going to continue to place on moving up the value chain. Again, whether that is in traditional or fossil fuels that the paper points out, or in new sectors and energy transition, renewables and, and critical minerals. Uh, China's going to present its new five-year plan next month um, at the two meeting session in, in March. Uh, we already have some indications of where that's going to go, but um, I think it's fairly clear that China is going to continue to put a lot of emphasis on innovation and technology. So the question then is what kind of challenges and opportunities does that present in these areas that the paper highlights, again, in traditional or fossil fuels, but also in energy transition? So China is not going to stand still. Uh, on anything that is brought up in the paper and anything that matters in this area of energy cooperation, investment, finance, uh, trade uh, with Latin America. So this is just to point out that Latin American governments, businesses, NGOs uh, need to understand that emphasis and try to uh, harness it as best as possible in terms of the potential for the region, but also to minimize risks. Let me move on to my second set of comments then, which is uh, focused on these issues of the, the U.S. role in the region um, and political risk of analysis and management. Um, one, this the, the paper certainly brings this up, um, but as someone who spent a lot of time and energy 
uh, looking into the China-Venezuela story, just like to note that this Venezuela story as it relates to China's involvement in oil and lending is not going to go away. I would say it's been on the back burner in global discussions uh, about China's role in debt. A lot of those discussions have focused on Africa, something I'll talk about more in a minute. Um, but just this is just to say that the Venezuela story uh, is going to continue to be important. It's obviously important to the people of that country and neighbors and to the hemisphere. Uh, but China's role there is extremely important, has not been resolved, uh, whether we think about its role in, in, in the oil sector there or in lending um, and uh, sort of the, the future of the country uh, and the role that the United States is going to play there. This is mostly a bunch of question marks for me at this point, but we'll have to see whether or not this comes on as a sort of focus of um, the, the Biden administration's policies in the region. Let me spend a couple minutes then just talking about how I see that playing out. Uh, again, the report brings this up. Um, and some of this is just echoing what, what Jeremy has already mentioned, but I think it's really important. Clearly, the Biden administration, uh, sort of harking back to the Obama administration, is going to, I believe, put a lot more focus on energy and energy technology uh, in the region uh, with a with a special focus, I believe, in Central America and the, the Caribbean. And so a lot of this will focus on sort of how to either um, be competitive with or counter the proposition that China makes in, in the region. Um, and I think a lot of this will focus on these alternative um, energy issues. Um, and, and here the question then is sort of what will the competitive proposition be from the U.S.? I think a lot of it will be on energy technology. Um, yet I don't think we're going to see any kind of major proposition of cooperation between the United States and China in the region. It's mostly going to be about the U.S. positioning itself. And I think a lot of that's going to be as a sort of partner in providing more quality, um, lower price um, technology for, for energy generation and use. Um, on the rivalry issue, I think uh, it is certainly worth all of our attention and something that the paper brings up to look more at the deal that was negotiated in the final days of the Trump administration um, with Ecuador and the Development Finance Corporation. Uh, I am personally skeptical that this is going to be a model for the region. I think this was something that was put in place by members of the Trump administration, a lot of emphasis um, in that deal on how this is a way to combat China's predatory lending, a lot of language similar to, to that which was used related to debt trap diplomacy. This was all um, signature Trump team policies, and I think that there will be different proposition on the table. Not sure how that will play out, but I think this is a really important case. I just don't think it's going to be necessarily an example in its details of how the how the Biden administration chooses to go forward. Um, finally, the, in this area of political risk and the U.S. role, um, I think it is worth all of us watching how China assesses political and economic risk in the region, given sort of maybe a different kind of a renewed U.S. Um, competitive position in the region uh, and probably more attention on the region for the Biden administration, in particular in these areas. Uh, of, of energy. And then let me make a final set of comments then about um, sustainability and global comparison. Uh, the report does an excellent job of going into many of the different details of the specifics of the China-Latin America energy relationship. And, uh, and, and that, I think, is something that we should all 
Um, I think we should laud the detail that is provided for the specifics of the China-Latin America relationship. Um, but I would just also point out that many of the issues that are brought up in the paper are relevant for other regions. And let me just quickly go through the three areas where I think there, there's relevance here. First is in this area of debt traps and lending transparency, which the paper points out. This is an extremely hot topic in other regions as well, in particular in South Asia, Southeast Asia, as well as Africa. And there is an extremely high level of interest in these issues of debt sustainability in particular and, and of sort of understanding uh, financial flows in particular uh, from China uh, to developing country regions. Again, a lot of emphasis on, on Africa and South, South Asia. Uh, and trying to track these flows. And I would just point you in the direction of some of the work that's being done by academics and international institutions uh, and governments to try to understand this in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, second area is governance, influence, and leverage that the paper brings up here. So what's the, what kind of leverage or influence is China able to achieve as a result of deeper trade, investment, and financial relations, especially as it relates to, to energy? Uh, there is, again, a high level of interest in exactly these issues in areas like Southeast Asia, but also uh, sort of pointing to the limits of how much leverage China is actually able to gain uh, as a result of deep inter dependence even with its neighbors. So this is just uh, pointing you to, to researchers in particular who are doing really good work at this sort of uh, level of investment uh, and, and finance as well as, as influence. And then uh, pointing to how to manage some of these issues of, uh, of economic interdependence uh, and, and uh, influence. The EU in particular is rolling out investment screening mechanisms um, uh, across member states. And I think there might be examples here of that process and then also um, uh, the, the details. And lastly, in terms of environmental and local community impact, the way in which governments, firms and NGOs in Southeast Asia and Africa are emphasizing these exact same issues and the way in which the development community in Europe and elsewhere is also focused on trying to improve uh, the environmental and local community impact of Chinese investment and, and, and financing in all of these areas. So I will wrap it up then with just two last very quick comments. And the first uh, is the importance of this cross-regional lesson sharing. So I hope this report feeds into some of those discussions. And lastly, just the importance of, for all of us everywhere, of increasing our knowledge about China. It's a long-standing challenge and goal. And this paper just, just emphasizes the importance of that. So thank you, and I look forward to the discussion. Matt, thank you so much. At this time, it um, gives me great pleasure to introduce um, Professor um, uh, uh, Davidson. Uh, Professor Davidson is an expert on Chinese investment in electricity markets in the developing world, and I think he's going to offer us a great perspective um, on the key findings of this report. Um, Professor Davidson? Thank you, uh, Richard, and thank you, Jeremy and Cecilia, for uh, walking us through this really interesting report. Um, it's a very welcome and detailed look at the ongoing changes of China exerting its influence globally. Um, and I'm gonna focus on two aspects that were highlighted today, uh, the new investment strategies and energy transitions. Uh, first off, we've been hearing a little bit about the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, this was launched in 2013. It's, there's some difficulty in pinning down exactly what's in BRI and what's out of BRI. But you can naturally think of it as an extension of the earlier going out strategy, uh, which was an opportunity for China's large uh, state-owned enterprises to 
uh, address their domestic production overcapacity and then become national champions. Now it's promoting Chinese technologies and standards and also strengthening economic, political, and increasingly military influence worldwide. An important element of what the BRI gives to these countries is that it's not only bringing technology, it's also bringing equity and it's also bringing export finance. And those are really key issues for very expensive infrastructure projects. Uh, so I thought I'd start with the solar question. I think solar is just a really interesting example here. So Mexico and Brazil are now in the top 10 uh, countries of China's uh, exporting PV. Um, so this is surpassing Spain and Germany, which were the earlier leaders in PV adoption. And now we're seeing that Latin American countries are really benefiting from that early learning. Um, but there's almost no Chinese-owned overseas PV manufacturing capacity in the region, as was pointed out. Um, these are still largely concentrated in Southeast Asia. Now, that makes sense given the other economic integration in the region with China. Um, but China's cost is now making this very, very attractive for meeting uh, LAC renewable energy goals. Um, and I think if folks are interested or concerned about what that kind of dependence means, you can really look to India as a potential litmus test as to how easily a country can indigenize solar PV after the costs have really come down. Um, it's going to be difficult and expensive, and we're not sure yet what that's going to look. And it's also important to recognize that if you look across the solar value chain, there are much more jobs in installation, balance of systems, maintenance, um, than in the direct module production itself. And so the globalized supply chains and the learning are the reason that we're talking about unsubsidized PV tenders at the moment. Um, now, if we think about China's power generating capacity investments ab uh, abroad, uh, usually hear about coal, gas, and large hydro. Now, we see a lot of gas and large hydro in Latin America. Um, coal, which is by and far the largest criticism of BRI and environmental grounds, is not an issue in LAC. So that's an interesting distinction. Um, I wanted to talk a little about UHV transmission lines. So this is a, you know, I've been following China's domestic energy transition for some time. China has the most of ultra high voltage uh, transmission lines in the world, um, around 30 now, um, and the longest line in the world, surpassing Belmonte just recently. Um, and it's really a success story of China's grid companies, in particular state grid and industrial policy. Um, so state grid has been actively moving overseas as some of the projects that it was building um, within country are now drying up. Um, and the report points out very importantly that 60% of that activity is now located in Brazil. Um, you know, all transmission lines are going to be controversial, regardless of who builds them. So it's really important to keep that in context. Um, also, there is a lot of foreign ownership and distribution companies in, in Latin America. So, for example, Chile, State Grid's purchase of the distribution company was actually from a Spanish company. And there's still an NL, an Italian a distribution company in Chile. Um, so there's a lot of foreign influence in this, in this distribution level and transmission level grid, uh, grid companies. Um, and an organization affiliated with State Grid, uh, Guideco is now eyeing much larger transmission grids abroad, trying to develop a lot more of a of an emphasis within the global community to build much more transmission lines. And State Grid would be very well poised to take advantage of those. Um, one last comment uh, before I get to the the questions here is um, on EVs and batteries. So China has really innovated in the EV space, um, and it's primarily from private companies outside of these large state owned joint ventures. Um, so BYD, NEO, and others. And these have been really helped by domestic and local government procurement and subsidies. So this is really developing off of a local, uh, a local demand for those, um, for those products. 
And 99% as a result of electric buses in the world are now made for and used in China. Um, I'm not sure if the Columbia deal changes those numbers, but it's still overwhelmingly within China. And so these EV manufacturers are now in a position where they could set up shop in destination markets if those markets are big enough and if the governments allow them. You know, we have an issue in this country about um, uh, whether or not we want to allow BYD to build electric uh, buses for our uh, municipal fleets. Um, and on the battery side, um, China is indeed the largest uh, production, uh, has the largest production capacity of lithium batteries. But the tech leaders, the ones that have the most patents and that are the most innovative, are really Korea and Japan. And they've been setting up these battery mega factories in China, um, some of the most advanced ones, like the ones that are supplying the cylindrical cells for Tesla's models, um, are coming from, for example, LG Chem, Panasonic. Um, China went big into a different chemistry that doesn't require cobalt. Um, and there's some uh, potential innovations on that front that could make it more suitable for uh, medium range EVs. But we know that we're going to need cobalt and lithium and some of these other advanced technologies for EVs going into the future. Um, and so that really begs the question of whether or not China can really catch up to that level and, and develop those new level, those new uh, new generation of batteries. Um, and then finally, you know, what would it take for LAC to develop a battery hub? There's a lot of questions around, you know, where should you locate within this supply chain? Well, you can look to the question of why do international suppliers locate in China? Um, there is a huge market, the demand. China sold 1.3 million EVs last year. Uh, Europe was just slightly larger than that, uh, the entire continent of Europe. Um, so uh, there's demand, there's infrastructure, and there's labor. There's a lot of components that make that very attractive to build those those factories, those mega factories in, in China. And so it's really a question about whether LAC can develop those kinds of uh, promising conditions to develop a battery hub going forward. Um, so again, really interesting report, um, and I'll save the rest of my time for questions from you all. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Um, at this time, we're gonna take questions. Um, we're not gonna be able to get through all of the questions. We've got over 20 um, questions that have come in. Um, with that, we'll start with the first question from Nick Puga. Um, who's, who's asking about whether uh, Mexico's AMLO administration may look to China to counteract U.S. pressure to preserve its um, electric sector restructuring. Uh, Jeremy, Cecilia, you want to take that question on? AMLO is interested in, in uh, indigenous, like, you know, local uh, production. And uh, China is not really buying much oil from from Mexico or investing in oil in Mexico, but um, the but they are investing in um, in lithium, for example, and uh, the purchase of Zuma that uh, Jeremy mentioned, Zuma uh, Energia. So I don't I don't think so. I think that um, they will continue to focus on the renewables and uh, and what lithium for now. But they purchased. Zuma, so that means that they're coming back. Um, they have hopes for renewable energy. Jeremy? I would just add that the domestic situation with regards to policy and regulation of the energy sector in Mexico is, is, is so fluid and so counter to any kind of, of international participation, whether it be from China, the U.S., anywhere. I mean, you have a, a fervent effort to make CFE the only game in town in the power market. Thank you, Jeremy. We've got another question uh, from, from Danny, um, who, who asks um, about um, 
the oversized amount of external debt held by Latin American countries um, from China um, and wanted to know if, if um, we could talk to the point of, um, of debt leverage that China has over um, countries. Matt talked about this a little, but there's the issue in the, in the report about China's hidden debt that is not tr truly transparent to the international community. So many creditors don't know fully how much is being lent to these countries. So, Jeremy, uh, you want to take that question? Well, I, I would just commend people to read the report. Um, I, I would echo what you just said about there's a lot of, uh, of lack of understanding because we just don't have access to some of the details. Um, I, 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 I thank Matt for emphasizing what that means vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela, particularly as, as we try and manage that um, you know, uh, failed state situation there. So I, I look forward to seeing what Matt thinks about that question. Because I think, Matt, you've, you've looked a lot more at the, the role and leverage of the, the quote-unquote debt, right? Yeah, it's just to say this has not been resolved at all. It's interesting how in the rest of the world this has become a big issue, um, especially China and Africa, uh, obviously in, in the wake of, of the coronavirus. Uh, debt um, is also a major issue, so lots of discussions about China's role uh, in debt refinancing, um, the, the fact that China is increasingly focusing on bilateral negotiations, uh, very difficult to get it involved in multilateral negotiations. So that includes difficulties with, with Venezuela's partners or neighbors. Um, the only other thing I would point to is the good work that the folks uh, at the Inter-American Dialogue and, and Boston University are doing, showing that uh, the policy bank lending is dropping off, but then there's all kinds of alternative kinds of you know, commercial and other uh, uh, firm lending happening in, in place. So the, the lending flows are switching, um, but there there's still going to be lots of questions about sustainability. Thank you, Matt. We have a, we have a question from O'Farrell from UNICEF uh, regarding uh, China's investment in hydrogen technology in Latin America. I don't know if anybody has any some uh, comments on that front. Well, I, the hydrogen, the, we haven't seen much, <laughs> to be honest with you, in our research. Um, it seems to me that hy the, the green hydrogen is um, really being led by uh, Europe and now the U.S. is getting involved in. Maybe Canada, you know, is developing a national hydrogen strategy. I think, I think hydrogen is definitely one of these questions, you know, um, where it fits in. And like Cecilia said, we have this, this rainbow uh, of colors of, of green, blue, gray hydrogen and, and what's going to happen. Um, we have a question from John Jacobson, um, who um, asks if we could address China's presence in Guyana. Um, Jeremy, you were a co-author of a recent report on Guyana. Um, do you want to take that question? Yeah. So, I mean, let, let me just focus on sort of the, the oil patch, because that's where I, I you know, there, there have been some other mining. There's some historical. And I think perhaps the, the questioner is also interested because there was a bit of a kerfuffle in the last couple of weeks um, to something to the point of what Cecilia mentioned in the one China. And, you know, this issue that's that's been particularly important in the geopolitics of Central America and the Caribbean. And that is, you know, mainland versus Taiwan and how to manage those relationships. Um, and so that's something we've seen playing out in Guyana lately. But in terms of the oil patch, I think we've seen uh, something that that sort of underscores the desire for China to continue and, and, you know, the going out strategy, what I would call securing supply, diversity of supply, guaranteeing energy security on the back of a, a variety of, of projects. 
And to that point, uh, Sinook, one of the, the, the major Chinese state-owned enterprise national oil companies, has a quarter, one tw- uh, 25% uh, stake in the Stravroic block and project, which is the one that when you hear about oil production and the boom in Guyana, that's really what we're talking about today. So um, as that ramps up and, and people expect Guyana to become one of the top three, four oil producers in the region on the back of these discoveries. Think about Guyana, or excuse me, think about Sinook with 25% of that, that project. Okay, we've got another question from Tio um, Riquez, um, who asks about um, um, U.S. Um, competitiveness and talks about attempts in the past to invest in Central America and Caribbean. Um, he um, is wondering about um, what the Biden administration is going to do better to um, to improve the possibilities of investment by private entities, um, given that we haven't done such a great job over the past 40 years. I was lucky enough to take a trip also in the Caribbean in 2018 when the Trump administration um, was really ramping up some of the emphasis on uh, sort of alerting governments and businesses in the region to concerns about China's role. Um, and uh, in discussions with U.S. diplomats, um, they were, you know, they were searching around for exactly answers to this question of instead of sort of complaining or saying that China is a bad actor, what do we what do we have in, in place? Um, and I think that's what's on the agenda. I, I mean, I think that the Biden administration in particular is going to have a few people that have been thinking about this for a few years. Um, but it's easier said than done. Um, it, it, it really requires coming in with alternative vision, but also money, technology, um, ways of, of putting your money where your mouth is when you complain about what, what China is doing. So I'm also eagerly waiting to see what, what the team comes up with um, when they say they're going to be more competitive. I think we've, um, we've run out of time. It's 10 o'clock. Um, I want to thank everyone for their participation. As I mentioned, we're going to work to uh, respond to the remaining questions. Um, I want to thank our, our panelists, Matthew and uh, Michael, um, our co-authors, Jeremy and Cecilia. I want to thank um, Alumbra Innovation um, Foundation for their generous support, as well as our um, Energy Steering Committee. And finally, I want to also thank UCTV as a co-sponsor of this program and our Hemisphere in Transition webinar series. Thank you everyone for attending and we look forward to continuing discussions on this issue and others. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.